Welcome to episode number two of the Be Like Mike mini-series, where Andrew Denrick and I discuss the Last Dance ESPN documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Uh, today, Andrew and I will be discussing episodes number seven and eight. And uh, welcome back, Andrew. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Uh, so I thought it'd be cool to, uh, to start off some more background on Andrew. And uh, you had played for the Creighton Blue Jays back in 2007 and 2008. And I'd love for you just to, to talk about um, maybe your, your single uh, most memorable experience or just a collection of memorable, memorable experiences uh, to provide some background on, on you. Absolutely. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, I mean, the old adage, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the longer it was, the better you were, you know, quarter, <laughs> sort of thing. I mean, this, this cup of coffee that I had in, in division one uh, NCAA hoops was, was very minimal, but yet incredibly memorable. And the whole, the whole experience was, was really a, a journey that kind of encapsulated my entire college, you know, experience and career. Um, I, you know, I came Grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. At you know, at the time, we've had some Division One Hoopers that had come through here, and obviously Mike Miller, um, and you know, two-time NBA champion from Mitchell, South Dakota. But you know, it was I was not recruited. I was not. This wasn't big-time high school basketball by any means. So I graduated from high school in '03, and then I was actually doing a summer internship. I don't know if I've told you the story with the Oakland Raiders before my my senior year at Creighton University and I was sitting down and, and I was having lunch at a training table meal with Ronald Curry, um, who's, he was his, you know, maybe his first or second year in the, in the NFL, but those who don't know Ronald Curry, I think he may be in the history of Gatorade, you know, players of the year, the only, uh, both basketball and football high school player of the year went on to play, play both at, at, at UNC it's uh, just a freak athlete and ended up making to the NFL. So we're sitting at training table. This is the summer of 2007. I was kind of just, just rapping with Ron, you know, and, and, and he's like, you know, you should, you should go try out. You should go walk on. And then, I, and, and I was like, you know, you're right. I'm going to do that when I get back to campus. So, you know, that was August fast forward to literally this, the season had started early that year. And for those that are college basketball junkies, this was like Nick Baugh, uh, Dane Watts uh, were the kind of captain senior leaders of this this Creighton team we also had Booker Woodfox who was a, a transfer an incredible shooter and then the Missouri Valley freshman of the year because Creighton was still in the Valley Conference at that time uh, a superstar kid out of out of Vegas called uh, named PNS P Allen Stinnett who was my best friend on the team and um, so got back to campus got myself into shape do shout out to the help of my English professor Dr. Dornsife, who would literally meet me at the Kiewit Center like every morning and uh, rebound in. And then it wasn't even necessarily like a tryout. Like Dana was Coach Altman. You know, I literally walked into his office one day and the season started early that year. And he's, I was like, hey, you know, you still having tryouts? Because I heard about this, you know, kind of thing. They have, you know, guys get their, their five, you know, seconds of fame on the Creighton old gym practice floor. <laughs> And so it, it, it resulted in him being like, yeah, we're still going to do it, I guess, if you're like the only one. And somehow, I don't know, I, I still don't know how the, this other kid, Josh, like ended up doing the whole thing with me. And because there was like two of us, they had to hell that. And then basically they just kept like having tryouts for, for me and Josh for like three weeks where like every day they would, we would just stand at practice and you know, we weren't even in, like, we were like equipment managers. And then we would just, one of the, I will never forget it. Nick Ernest was like the, you know, graduate assistant. As soon as practice was over, he'd just be like, all right, Venerick, Josh, get on the line. And we just start running. And we did this for like, literally like a month until like the end of November. And then they're like, all right, guys, you can be on the practice squad. And then like a month later, they're like, um, oh, you guys can wear street clothes on the bench. And then a month later, we got a dress for senior night. And it was, it was, it was the coolest, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, one of the coolest experiences in my life at the Quest Center at the time. It's now the CHI. Sold out, 17,000, um, you know, and, and put on a uniform and, you know, made some incredible relationships 
Um, you know, I think I got to pr- play offense, you know, maybe like five times the whole, the whole winter as I was just designated to basically just shadowing this superstar P. Allen Stinnett. Um, and thankfully, you know, my, my endurance kept me, you know, in the game. So, when, you know, I just run sprints at the end and make myself, you know, notable by making all my free throws um, once, once practice is over. And, uh, you know, Coach Altman was there on, on graduation night um, when, when I walked, uh, got my diploma at Creighton and he came over. And that was a really cool moment for me um and obviously a great day to be a blue jay and so uh that whole there wasn't one you know kind of game right because i didn't play there wasn't one uh you know specific moment i mean it was just playing with some incredible athletes from from all over the country who yeah i think kenny lawson was on that team he was a freshman he went and played overseas dane dane watts is still having a career in the bundesliga in germany nick ba obviously is a color commentator for fox booker went down to the D league where he's been with uh, the Dallas club, you know, the legends P Allen, you know, for those that follow the drew league, which is the summer runs out in LA that, you know, featured Kobe and James Harden and all the, the top hoopers in those small gyms in South central LA Pisa, Pisa living legend still, you know, amongst them. So uh, some great relationships, some incredible, incredible memories and really, um, you know, made me uh, a blue Jay for life. Yeah, <clears throat> what a cool experience. So, so uh, thanks for sharing that. If Ron Curry wouldn't have nudged you, do you think you would have tried out? No way. No? Not a chance, because it wasn't even in my mind until that conversation when literally we were just sitting down. And I'll never forget it was at the training complex in Alameda. And it was, a, it was just a one-on-one call. You know, and, and Ronald, didn't, he didn't know me. You know, I mean, he knew of me. and He got to know me throughout the – we were about the same age. You know, he was – uh, I was 22 years old and he was just in, so it was just kind of like having a, a conversation, you know, with your peer who was also your idol, you know, he was on the cover of all the, you know, the slam magazines and all the, the recruiting magazine growing up. And so it was just, it was, it was really cool to him to kind of nudge me and, and for this guy who, you know, he can do anything for him to just put it in such a like simple, like pragmatic terms I'm just like yeah you should you should just do that I was like yeah you're right <laughs> you know, Ronald Curley told me so I should you know because you obviously could both you know both play in the NBA and the NFL so anything is possible. <laughs> why not me right yeah uh that's cool man that's very cool were there any moments throughout that experience when when you were kind of hitting the milestones on the team yeah where you wavered or were you committed all the way through? Just like, no. give, me the, give me the next thing and I'll, I'll jump over that thing. You know, the funny thing, I mean, the, the first one was the hardest. Like I, literally two and a half, three weeks into standing there for two and a half hours and then getting on the line and running until, you know, you're ready to puke. I was like, fuck this. Like this is, I, you know, why am I doing this? You know, like this. And then, you know, I remember having a really candid conversation with my dad and he's like, he's just, you just got to keep going back. You know, he's like, just keep going back until, you know, they tell you otherwise. And I, I started, you know, getting kind of cocky with it, I guess, and wearing like shitty shoes, you know, and just be like, I'm just going to wear like cool tennis, tennis shoes today. You know, some old, like, you know, eighties Converse stuff and just and see if I could run in those, you know, and the, hey, the, yeah. Okay. You know, and just kind of, so it, we had fun with it and um, got some pretty cool perks. And uh, like I said, I mean, still, I've seen Bob, I've seen Josh Doser was the starting point guard, some really cool Nebraska legends um, that were a part of that. And then, and then to, to learn from one of the, I think one of the greatest college basketball coaches in the game, Dana Altman, um, you know, he, he really, he really, it's crazy. Like uh, not to knock my high school coach by any means, but you go from Lincoln senior high school, Sioux Falls to like, and you know, I mean, you see like the strategy and the evolution and the innovation of like how to win games and how to discipline players. And um, I mean, he, he just went to the final four, you know, a few years ago and he's yeah. got another club and has every year seemingly top recruiting squad. So it was a really cool and it just solidified my passion for what a neat game it is and seeing that, you know, meritocracy that it can provide um, for people from all walks, you know, and certainly that locker room from all corners of the country all come together and I'll never forget what teaching Booker Woodfox at the, at the cafeteria, how to eat cottage cheese with sunflower seeds. <laughs> he'd never, <laughs> he'd never had that before. You know, he's like, 
So I haven't either. How do you, yeah. is there, is there, is there I guess a it's the South Dakota thing. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, I, Booker's has never even got its cheese. I, I was like, Oh, you got to put some sunflower seeds in there. It's really good. So, you know, little, little jokes aside like that, that, um, that were always a good time. That's great, man. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Of course. Um, so today we're going to talk about episode seven and eight. And, um, for those who, haven't listened that the first episode Andrew and I talked about episodes one through six we covered uh, a big body of work uh, from ESPN this one's a little bit more focused um, and as a reminder what we're trying to accomplish here is just identifying the intersection between uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls run through this lens of the ESPN documentary the last dance and connecting that to well-being and and purpose and um, you know, living a life with intention. So episodes seven and eight uh, were quite a bit of a turn from episodes one and six. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, where one through six was really focused on this uh, superhuman uh, robot that just, you know, pushes and pushes and pushes. Uh, episode seven was clearly a turn. Uh, episode eight uh, was clearly a turn as well, kind of giving you some more insight into who Michael Jordan is as a human being and as a, as a person. Um, you know, the two things that jumped out to me in episode seven were, well, there's a couple things, but the, I think the two biggest things were, um, you know, Jordan's father's death uh, or his murder. Uh, and then, you know, the, the toll that that took on him and the subsequent decision that he made to retire the first time, which I believe he was 30 years old. Uh, to go play baseball. So, um, you know, I'd love to, to, to pick up right there, Andrew, and just see what jumped out at you. I mean, I, the emotional obviously comes to mind throughout that entire episode. It starts with emotion, kind of ends with emotion. But um, I'd love for you to, to, to take the baton from there. For sure. I mean, it really was, was a – well, first of all, the whole series, I mean, how, how well told this narrative is that – that, that, that goes on. I mean, it's just, it, every episode is, it's just, it, it impresses me from a filmmaking perspective of how much is encapsulated into 60 minutes and how much of a, of a, of a rich, like true, like Hollywood, you know, story script that could never have possibly been written. I mean, all these twists and turns, but the, the really big takeaway for seven was, yeah, seeing the, the humanizing MJ, you know, and seeing him endure, you know, this, this heartbreaking, you know, murder of his father, which is just, it's a really weird and strange deal. Um, and, and it just, you know, I, I think I remember one of the quotes that kind of stuck out was one of his, his mom mentioning that, like, you know, he was just kind of the rock that they were all leaning on, you know, and in just classic MJ fashion, you know, was just, was just there for everyone else. Um, and, and I wonder how much of that, that trauma that he, he kind of tucked underneath the hood that that you know it it, it 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 didn't come out until he finally won that that ring in 96 you know mm -hmm. and, and holding that trophy and and finally really you know relieving himself of all that 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 stuff that he had just been like i'm michael jordan i'm not going to deal with this right now my dad died i'm just going to walk away from baseball or football or basketball and start start playing baseball and just like try yeah. to forget about it um and what that how how that impacted him later and maybe even still today um he's a tough dude i mean it's just it's so incredible what what he what he went through and when you think about this period of of episodes seven and eight that really focused on you know what was that 90 94 until you know 99 particularly these two episodes really 96 i mean i don't know anybody who's walked this earth that's done more in two and a half three years than than he was doing in the mid 90s yeah i mean what what a productive <laughs> Uh, three, you know, four years, um, when, I mean, it's like the, the, the guy ever sleep, how much he was getting accomplished and doing. Um, but yeah, his, his, his father's loss was, um, was pretty impactful. And, um, I, it was just crazy. It's just this really sad story that, um, is unfortunate and, 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 but obviously played into how this whole, you know, interesting tale twisted and turned, um, and impacted his legacy and, and, and ultimately life. Cause they were pretty close, you know, it was, it was really, it yeah. sounded like it wasn't just, I mean, they were 
they were buddies and he was always yeah. there. Um, and he really, I think one of the earlier episodes, you know, talked about, or maybe it was seven. Um, you know, it was, it was MJ's dad that really kind of said, sat him down when he was younger and said, you know, he's getting mm -hmm. all the trouble and said, Hey man, you're going to go on this road or you're going to go on that road. And we're yeah. you know, either going to put the ball in the hole and, or you're not. And it, and I mean, what a conversation that was, um, that ended up giving us the, you know, the greatest basketball player of all time. Yeah, I think he had gotten suspended three times his freshman mm -hmm. year. He said he was into mischief all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, um, the, 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 well, they had talked about the physical toll that was taken on his body just, you know, um, to get to three championships. And, and I don't know how much of this was, was the, the, the production value and the scripting how they were leading up to this. Like, he was just like, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm done. Like I've got, I got to two. Well, I'm going to go for three because there's only so many who have gotten to the three and there's this buildup. Uh, and you know, he's got it. And then this tragic, uh, situation happens with his father. Um, and the way that, uh, he moved into baseball, it was just like that, that con or that that transition to baseball. So he was thirty, right? He was thirty years old when he retired. Is that right? Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. it was thirty or thirty one, but right around there because February is his birthday, so he might have just turned thirty one. Yeah, so he's at the top of his game, just won three. Yeah, father, uh, father dies, and then he goes to to baseball, and then you see these scenes in the in the um, clubhouse with you know, guys that are probably the Andrew Fenricks back in the day of, of, uh, of, of the trip, the double A single baseball. And, um, you know, there was a couple things in there that really, I mean, he, he was, he was going life, right. So he had made an intentional change. Uh, like I'm, I, I control my destiny. Uh, I'm going to make this decision. Uh, even though I think it's in seven or maybe eight, um, Phil Jackson's talking about the gift that he was given and how, you know, he's kind of disappointed that he's leaving this legacy behind. So I'm sure there was pressure from, from everywhere, including the people that are closest to him. Um, but, you know, at that press conference that had like the entire world there when he announced his retirement, I think in the, he, he didn't say he was retiring or he did, but he said he was hedging. Right. So, Maybe in the long run, in his vision, he knew that he just needed a break and baseball was something that uh, was important between that relationship with his father. But it was cool to see just Tim uh, being a kid or kid-like again. It was also interesting to know that Reinsdorf had uh, continued to pay him three million bucks a year yeah. uh, while he was, you know, while he was trying to hit uh, uh, curveballs. Uh, so I didn't realize he was that good until the pitchers figured out that he couldn't hit the curve. But um, yeah, I mean, there was clearly an emotional tone to to that entire episode. Um, you know, and then the way that it ended. So I've got the quote here. I mean, these, this was the last phrase that, that Jordan said at the end of episode seven. And he's seen this as he's getting choked up. He's clearly getting emotional. Uh, and so he says, I'm only doing it because it is who I am. Uh, that's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. And then he stands up and says, we got to take a break. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so just seeing that side of Jordan is, is uh, I think it's a good for all of us. Just, you know, he was the greatest of all time. He was operating at a very high level, but he's still a human being that has emotions and feelings and made some decisions back then that probably didn't make sense to anybody but himself. Uh, but he did it and, um, and still came back out on top. You know, there's another thing that that's in that episode seven that I think is, a, is tied to emotion or emotional intelligence as well. And that's the Pippin thing. Mm -hmm. So Jordan's, you know, uh, in Birmingham playing baseball and uh, now Pippin's the guy. And there was that play I think it was at the garden. I can't remember who it, who it was against, but uh, Phil Jackson called the play for Coop Coach. And uh, Pippen got pissed and refused to go out on the court. And, you know, I, I think that's pretty insightful too, from, a, from almost a different, it's still emotional from a different perspective. Um, I don't know, any, any 
thoughts there? I mean, did that strike you? On well, yeah, that that'd be a difficult locker room to to go back into. I mean, the team yeah. wins, and yeah, and, yeah. And a lot. I mean, I, I think Bill Cartwright was the one that kind of addressed it. God bless Bill Cartwright. USF, San Francisco alum. I did, I didn't know that. I had to follow. I didn't know where Bill Cartwright went to school, but. Um, yeah, he, I mean, it, it, that was a weird deal. Pippen has an interesting side to him that I had never seen until this, this as well. And um, yeah, that year when, when Jordan was, was in Birmingham, I mean, that gave, that gave Pippen the spotlight. And I don't know if just from like a, yeah, from a, from a teammate, um, you know, I mean, at, yeah, it was just, it was very seemingly kind of uncharacteristically of, of uncharacteristic of, of Pippen. Although as you learn more about him and kind of when he, what he was like and went through, um, yeah, it was, it was odd. Um, it, it obviously create, yeah, that, that was a tough season for them. Um, and I, I don't know how to respond to that or, you know, get, get on board the next day and just act like that, you know, didn't happen. Um, because yeah, that was a, it was just a pivotal point. And when, you know, a team season or period, um, when that, that brotherhood is kind of broken, um, in, in, in just like, Hey man, you're not even, it was just a very kind of selfish, selfish act, but, um, yeah, um, on another side note about that, I just for, forgot how, how good Tony Kukoc was and put, yeah. you know, put European ballers on the, on the map. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and the dude was, he was cold-blooded. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I don't know where that ties into Jordan again, but it was just. Uh, well, I mean, do, what do you think, it, do you, how do you think Jordan would have taken that situation? I mean, well, if, yeah. if, if, if you take Pippen out and put Jordan in, uh, would Jordan be like, no way? You, you, well, we're not. I'm not inbounding, even though I, I've thought about that. Like, yeah, Pippen's yeah. up. Pippen's not Jordan, but Pippen's up there. Um, he is. He is. And um, you know, I, I guess I don't know. There were there were. I mean, John. You know, Michael Jordan pass, passed the ball to to John Paxson. You know, in in that yeah. that Suns yeah. final. I mean, I think that um, you saw it like. I guess also the respect that Phil Jackson had earned that like you would think like, I know Pippen's like, he's the best player on that team that year, you know, whatever. But like, if this is what coach draws up for you and Phil Jackson's got three rings and they're going for a fourth and, and it's like, you yeah. kind of just drink that Kool-Aid right there. Um, and the fact that it worked validated, yeah. you know, and, and so yeah. I don't know, obviously, yeah. Would, would Jordan have ever been taking the ball out with, you know, a couple seconds left? Absolutely not. But yeah. I guess in the crazy scenario that that was what Phil, you know, thought was best. Um, I, I, that just would never happen. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, I don't know if MJ, you know, as hard of a teammate as he was to play with would have ever just said, I'm refused to check back in the game. And left yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's taking it to an extreme. Uh, you know, there was one other quote that, Jordan had in there about winning about well he said winning has some leadership has a price uh that kind of ties to what we're talking about right here like he had said that you know he he never asked anybody to do thing that he wasn't willing to do um and that this camaraderie this you know so this would be social right the, the camaraderie uh, joining a team or joining a brotherhood like that is that you really want to like he wanted to win, but also recognize that in order for him to win and for the team to win, like they had to lock arms and, and move together. So he, he said, he had talked about just the standard of, uh, of how he played the game and, you know, he wasn't going to take anything less. And um, I think that's why that's probably what drove him, uh, you know, when he came back and then finally when he got that, that trophy in 96, what, what kind of that release that second time around was probably just like the, the manifestation of everything. Um, okay. So let's talk about episode eight. Yeah. Uh, starts off with BJ Armstrong. Poor, poor. Well, I don't know if it's poor BJ Armstrong. BJ has a story, right? I mean, good for BJ. Uh, I didn't realize that BJ and Jordan would be covering each other when they're on different teams. I always, I always pictured in my, my mind that BJ was a lot smaller. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so BJ, BJ gets the upper hand on, uh, on the team. And then I think it's, who is it? It's, uh, is it, no, 
who talks smack about it? Someone says something. There's a B, maybe it's just BJ. No, it's BJ. Yeah, I'm getting confused with the magic and Nick Anderson saying 45 isn't 23. Um, but you know, Jordan creates, well, it wasn't created this time. It was created for him, but he's just like, all right, that's all I needed. Yeah, was and then it. it's lights out. That was it. And BJ should have known better. Having, <laughs> yeah. having been around, you know, this tyrant, as they called him, um, you know, MJ, that's, that's just, the, that's just the, this, all he needs, you know, is, yeah. um, and, um, and yeah, and he went and he ran with it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was just, I, there, you know, those guys, I mean, I, I think watching this and then trying to like kind of get in, in, in some, some idea of like the Jordan rules, you know, and how mm -hmm. he defined, you know, th this, this professionalism and his competition level, you know, you, you think that you forget. And like, this is like every single night, you know, these guys were going up against Michael Jordan and, you know, you know, the NBA, you only get two times, you know, a year, this is now NBA playoffs. You get, you know, best mm -hmm. of five series like that. They would bring that intensity as if it were like game seven in the finals, every night they played Jordan and Jordan yeah. would still go out there and just kick their ass. <laughs> yeah. And like, but the one time that, you know, his ex-teammate gets a little, <laughs> like a little taste and, and it's like a game one, you know, the first round Eastern, you know, I mean, it was that, it was, it was gone. And that, that I think really accelerated that whole run that they yeah. went on because of, you know, the, the, I mean, that was all they, they just, that, they, they, they clicked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was, but that was how you felt if you got what BJ like twenty four points on MJ. Is it was like game seven of the finals, right? Right. And then yeah, there was there was another there was a guy uh, way back when he was younger playing for the was it the Bullets. Yes, the the Bradford, Bradford Smith. Yes. Yes. Who went off? And then for some reason they had a home and home crazy back series. to back. Uh, yeah. And he just went off, right? He got like 36 points in the first half. <laughs> and, he, and, and, and he made it up. He made the whole right. story up. He never yeah, up. yeah. But that was all he needed. And that was one, one, one interesting takeaway that, that B.J. Armstrong offered was how he said that he felt when Jordan came back, and particularly maybe it was specifically pertaining to that 70, that 98, 97 season, <clears throat> Or excuse me, not yeah, ninety seven, ninety eight, was how when they, I mean the the run that no the last one ninety 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 eight ninety nine right we went ninety six ninety seven ninety eight so it was ninety seven ninety eight yeah. my years yeah. mixed up I can't believe this was all in a period of like <laughs> three years that these yeah. two episodes covered but he was Jordan B J Armstrong was saying Jordan was playing to win and everyone else was just playing the game of basketball. Mm -hmm. But Jordan was just had this like maestro effect of like watching and seeing where everything was going just to do whatever it took to win. Right. And I was like, he was, he was like playing the game within the game. And that was yeah. the Jordan rules. And I was just like, man, God, he was so good. So good. Yeah. The, uh, so, so there's the BJ thing. There was the, the Nick Anderson. I think it was Nick Anderson, right? Didn't Nick Anderson yeah. say 45 yeah. is in 23? And then yeah. that was like, okay, well, 23 is coming back out. And then I'm going to just go, go, go off. And then there was the George Carl thing. And I think the 96 is a 96 yeah. series yeah. Uh, finals where George Carl didn't say hi to him at a restaurant. And so Jordan created this inner narrative like, oh, he's not taking you seriously or whatever he created. And then just you know, goes off and dominates, right? So that mindset, I mean, I, that was really insightful for me. Also, is the the you know the 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 drive, the hunger, the desire to win. In some cases, was manufactured, right? It was just like this meta um, moment where he he understood he had a vision on where he wanted to go. But that vision wasn't always sustainable through periods of the day-to-day -day grind, right? So he understood enough to say, uh, I want to be the greatest of all time. I want to go on another run here, but I've got to create it within my mind. I've got to create these games. I got to gamify in order to, to, to elicit the best of me. 
Um, and I think there's a lot right there for all of us, for everyone to learn from. I think the hard part is, well, there's a lot of hard parts, but one of the hard parts is just like, okay, well, what's the vision, where do I wanna go? But then understanding that I've got a hell of a lot more control uh, on a daily uh, over all of this, uh, if I can just get into the right mindset that can connect toward, toward that vision. Um, but man, what a, what do you, like just that, that inner narrative that he would create was so incredible. And then I'm pretty sure he, he admitted that George Carl never did that. Is that right? It was, it was uh, just made up? No, I think, I was think George did stiff him. George did, oh, okay. stiff him, but I think the, I think the LeBradford thing was a bit, uh, that's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah, because, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, he would find any, anything, you know, that, 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 it, that ignited, you know, that, that force that he may have been lacking at that day or that moment or that quarter. Um, and, and that's why I think, you know, another one of the things I remember Roy Williams, you know, the current UNC head coach now who was an assistant and Jordan was there, you know, mentioned that like MJ was like one of the only guys that he had an ability. He had one of those switches and, and Jordan just always kept it on. You know, like Jordan had this switch that like it was always on. And then when he needed to like flicker it like three or four levels higher, he could even go there, you know, and that's what, yeah, it, it took these, these, yeah, these games within these games, these, you know, sort of stupid excuses. Um, and that illustrates to me how he probably was getting bored because it was becoming so easy and, and too, too simple. Um, because he had just like, he'd mastered his craft. Like he was just the ultimate, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and it was time for him to step away. And then I think that challenge of having, doing it again, like a second three-peat <laughs> um, was like more, it was more in, 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 then running the table and doing, you know, going, you know, eight, eight in a row, seven in a row, like, you know, it was like almost harder that way than to yeah. do it the other. And yeah. that's great to think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lesson in there <clears throat> right now for us, for, for just for everyone, right? Like the, I like how you phrase that the game within the game, just, uh, you know, we're in a, we're in a weird time in the world right now. And it's like those games within the games, like how can you create these, these, uh, these games or um, this you know, inner narrative to help you improve in the moment? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, I can, you know, you had raised a question last time that, I, that I've been thinking about a lot about um, is Jordan a good representation of well-being? Like this thing's called be like Mike, but do we always want to be like Mike? I mean, he's what's very absent from all these conversations is his his, his personal life beyond really his relationship with his father and a couple glimpses into um, some commentary by his mother. But they don't talk about his kids. You see a couple glimpses there. They don't talk about relationship with his first wife with the second wife um so i you know I, I think that's a that's a really good question uh that i've been marinating on myself i don't know what the right answer is um but but the this inner narrative and creating uh you know creating opportunities for yourself to just slowly incrementally get better or level up in a big way i think that's that's there for all of us constantly but in particular in this moment right now and I, I love one note that 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 what you just said is basically the Mamba mentality, you know, and, yeah. jo and Kobe just took that in a very millennial mindset and like repackaged it as like his mantra. But like Jordan was Jordan was doing that, you know, I, I actually my screensaver is the Mamba mentality and it's to be on a constant quest to try to be the best version of yourself. That's what the mentality is. It's not a finite thing. It's a constant quest to try to be better today than where you, you were yesterday and better tomorrow than where you were the day before Kobe Bryant, you know, and that, 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 I mean, that's what Jordan was doing in the nineties. Nobody had social media and we didn't have branding experts to let, you know, and, but they missed that. They could have had the mama mentality, <laughs> yeah. you know, before 24 got it. Um, but yeah, he was, he, he brought it every day. And, and then I think I remember hearing an anecdote about him in the eighties, like Jordan really wanted those scoring titles. And he just was like, dude, all I got to go out and is get eight a quarter. And he would just break it up so that you know, he would have 32 at the end of the night, you know? Yeah. And so anytime, he, you know, and he's just like constantly finding ways to, to reinvent himself. I mean, he, he, he really is for somebody that 
you know, left UNC a year early and probably went to less classes than the most of those who attend college. Um, he's, a, he's incredibly smart, like yeah. very sharp. Um, yeah. I don't feel like I know enough and, and not to judge if he is like a, a, a you know, holistic heal, healer of the six dimensions of well-being. <laughs> I, would, I would like to learn more about how he runs a business now that he is the owner of the Charlotte Hornets. And like, what are his leadership styles when it comes to like a more front office managerial role? Uh, because he, he was, he was pretty good about as good as anybody doing their job when he was playing basketball, you know, um, how that transcends into a, you know, corporate kind of, you know, setting today. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good point because yelling at people and uh, you know, when it's just large, I mean, there's, there's physical and, um, emotional on the basketball court. It's like, how do you find higher ceilings and just push yourself? That doesn't translate fully into the front office cubicle setting, right? So he would have to he would have to tap into some different resources or different energy to get the most out of people um, there. So uh, the Space Jam. Let's talk about Space Jam. What uh, what? So that whole. I mean, that's another really insight into his intellect and I don't know if it was scripted this way or if this was by design but just the fact that he he you know people came out to the set which I'm assuming was in LA came out to that set just to play basketball on probably a Hollywood movie set and then play basketball with Michael Jordan and he gets to scout everybody and it's, it helps him get up, get up that curve to get back on top of his game. I mean, how genius is that? And then he works out two hours in the middle of the day between shooting with Bugs Bunny and Bill Murray. I mean, incredible. I, I forgot that he had, he, he had done that before, like in that shortened season when he came back in the playoffs to lose to the, to the, to the Magic. I forgot that, that it was that following summer when Space Jam was filmed. I, maybe I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I mean, he, he's, yeah, so back lot of Warner Brothers, you know, Burbank, California, they build him the Jordan Dome. He, he you know, and it's, I mean, I, you saw, he's working out with this world-class trainer, uh, Tim Grover, um, who authors this book, Relentless. I, I haven't read it, but I've heard really good reviews. Um, you know, has everything there centralized. I mean, he probably went, he probably rented a condominium across the street, went to the set, you know, went back and forth. I mean, pretty simple. Like, but to be able to get the, the like most people, you know, what did you do in the off season? Oh, you know, I worked on my jumper, you know, played some golf. No, Jordan films a movie, you know, <laughs> makes a movie and then goes on to win three titles. And yeah, the whole summer, what they built one. And then that, and then to get all these young players out there, to see what their games, how they had evolved when he was taking his, you know, little sabbatical. Um, and, and, and it just, it, it sharpened the knives even more. And it just, it, it, it also, I think from like maybe a, I don't know, confidence level, it, it kind of like gave, it, it put Jordan back on a pedestal where they're like, they're, they're destined. Patrick Ewing and Alonzo Morton, these guys are flying across the country to yeah. go hang, you know, be with MJ. And like, he's like, yeah, come on. It's like the gates of 300, the movie when the warriors, <laughs> you know, siphon them down into the little, you know, it's like, this is my <laughs> domain where you're going to fight me. Um, yeah. It was, it was awesome. And what a, I mean, again, he's not sleeping. The guy literally, when, how, how does he get, how does he have the same 24 hours in a day as everyone else? Yeah. Yeah. I think Reggie Miller talks about that, right? Doesn't he say like, he would have to be on set at six o'clock or seven in the morning and yeah. they'd play games until like, nine or something yeah 10 o'clock yeah but how genius right and bringing like if there's any way to reestablish that you're the most dominant player um and home court advantage it's right there yeah there there is the and i mentioned this that there's this guy this trainer who actually was a was grew up a, a childhood friend of of a teammate of mine back at creighton chad millard they grew up in new hampshire together the, the guy's name is chris brickley and he's got an incredible, um, you know, social media influence at uh, cbrickley603 is his handle on Instagram. And he's, he's basically taking his passion. He, he was a, he was a walk-on at Louisville for Rick Pitino, taking his passion for basketball, you know, beyond anything that he could have ever done playing 
as an NBA trainer for all these top talent today. Um, and he's listening and, and hearing about the Jordan dome. He's basically created that the Jordan dome in those summer runs mm-hmm. where now today, you know, all these guys congregate and he has this black ops basketball Academy and he lives in this midtown East, like high rise in Manhattan. Then they, the, 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 the builder, they, they built an actual like full court basketball in the basement of this building. So it's on like 44th and like third street right next to grand central. And, and every Hooper comes through there and plays in, in the basement of his building. And he just runs these, these summer runs with LeBron. Cool. They all cool. come out for fashion week. And it's like, Jordan, again, this is 25 years ago. Like he was doing it. He was doing it then. I mean, he's just yeah. so cool. He is so yeah. cool. Everyone yeah. tries to, you know, tries to imitate and, and, and be like him. It's, um, everything he did was just so innovative. Um, and the, the other thing that I thought about too, and I wonder how much he got paid to do space jam because when Jordan was, was playing, you know, he didn't make any money until his two last, his final two years for the bulls, he got paid over $30 million. And the previous, like, you know, what was that? 10 years, he made like $30 million combined. Oh, interesting. Yeah. His salary was yeah, on his contract. It was yeah, all on his salary. It was yeah. all, yeah. you know, endorsement stuff. So he was, a, he was quite the businessman off the court. Yeah. I mean, if you think about how he, um, he went from, he went from uh, coming back in the middle of the season his legs just, you know, he doesn't have the legs to make it through. They get beat by, did they get beat by the Magic? Yeah. In the, in the Eastern, in the Eastern finals. Yep. Um, and his response is to go film a movie. And then the following season, they, he played all 82 games. He led the league in, uh, in scoring, in shot attempts, and played more than all but 11 players. So, like that, just that right there. And then they win, they win one of the next three or they win the next three. Yeah. That is the first one. Um, so probably the last thing here, the last point I'd love to, to talk about is the Steve Kerr um, fight. So the Steve Kerr fight. And I can't remember when that was. I think it was right when he came back. I, I think it was in the middle of the season when he had come back. Uh, and he talks about how, guys aren't taking it serious and they're riding on the coattails of the three championships that they won. And you got, you know, uh, just a different tone. And I think my sense was Jordan knew he was, he was an asshole. He's coming on really strong, but it, that he juxtaposes that by saying, yeah, I was coming on strong because I, I wanted to win. I wanted everyone to feel what it's like to be a winner. Uh, and Steve Kerr, who's like, you know, a hundred pounds soaking wet, five, 11, five, 10, five, seven, um, and what seems like, uh, w- one of the nicest guys on the planet, uh, gets into a, to a scuffle with Jordan and, and Jordan takes a swing at him and punches him in, in his right eye. Um, uh, that, that whole story. I love that story. I loved it for a, for a number of reasons because Jordan's now got the hindsight to look at it. And, and even then it sounds like Jackson kicked him out of practice. So, you know, he wasn't above that. So there's this, you know, Jordan coming in saying, we've got expectations to be a, a championship caliber team. And then he's pushing them so hard. And then Phil Jackson says, I've got expectations on, on all of you on what it means to be, a, to be a teammate. You're out. So I thought that was really insightful. There was a couple layers there. And then how Jordan recognized it, what sounds like pretty immediately called Kerr back or called Kerr and just said, Hey man, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. And it sounds like that solidified at least the relationship between those two, but probably the relationship within the entire team that led, led to, uh, to greatness. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, they, I think when, when, when you have a, when you have a teammate um, like Steve Kerr, who, I mean, they, they could not be polar opposites in terms of athletic ability and you know skill strength um but but they were they were very similar it sounds like in terms of their drive and their competitiveness and i think when when kerr mentioned you know when he didn't back down from jordan he gained that respect 
um, that gave Jordan the trust and confidence for him to hit big shots, you know, that he would have never otherwise probably gotten if he couldn't have taken a, you know, an uppercut, <laughs> um, you know, blow. And, and I, and it, you know, it's like, it, it's those sort of, I don't know, you know, pivotal points in, in a, in a, you know, a, ch a championship caliber basketball and just like a, a run like this that like can really like bring a team together or they can really break them apart. And um, obviously, you know, brought them really close and um, it, it, it probably everyone, you know, created a little bit of like wake up for everybody else. A, because they, nobody wants to get punched in the face, but B like <laughs> also like, Oh wow. Steve Kerr stood up to Jordan. Like, you know, now, now I can too, like that Scotty Burrell was, you know, he was getting, you know, ha <laughs> harassed and, but everybody kind of, kind of felt like, all right, you know, puff your chest up a little bit more and like, be like Steve, you know, right. and by yeah. responding to that, then you kind of, you know, you, you get this momentum where the rest of the, the locker room, plus it sounded like, yeah, it, I haven't, I don't know if seen, you know, that basketball human side of Jordan as much as he did when, you know, he admitted to feeling like this big, you know, and when, when he, when he had to call Steve Kerr um, because he knew he was completely out of line and he, he crossed over. But it, again, it, I think that the impact was, it took a negative and it made it very positive. Um, whereas other leaders, A, may not have, like Rodman, who you met, you know, when he screwed up earlier in the series, like didn't, you know, he had his way of apologizing, but it wasn't that of like bringing the team together, like let's ride this, let's, you know, turn this into something that we can, we can build and grow and learn from. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what Jordan was able to do. What else? Anything else on episodes seven and eight that you want to touch on? Before we wrap this up. Yeah, I was just looking over a couple of my notes, see if there's anything else. I mean, I, I one thing that I, I, I just wanted to observe was when was when Jordan was when he stepped away from from basketball um, and, and his ability to like pick up baseball that quickly. It's just like I mean, that's superhuman. Really mm -hmm. is. I mean, you can't you, you, there's there I mean you want to argue greatest athlete. I mean, you take Olympians, you try to, you know, give them a three point shooting contest that are, you know, track and field gold medal. I mean, like to do what he did. I mean, I, I just forgot, like, and you hear the testimonies and those little anecdotes from his batting cage coaches and things like that. I mean, he was just such a freak and I don't know. It's just so inspiring to see someone that, yeah, you know, maybe wasn't a, you know, a model example of, of, some of some of the, the the six you know dimensions but um the ones that he owned you know i mean he was it's inspiring you know to try to reach for those level while raising awareness about maybe some spots and pockets and places where potentially today he could have you know improved upon but i don't really think jordan cared if he if he if he you know wasn't the best at, at everything it just was about winning um and about being the best that, that he could be. And um, that, that whole baseball thing was, it's so crazy. I mean, I, I still can't believe that while, you know, you were living this, that this was actually like in real time, because it looks, it looks like we're watching like a movie. Like it, it was like made up um, because of just how incredible the whole, the whole story and saga and subplots are. It's really well done. And in this time where sports has been canceled, it's been a, it's been a really breath of fresh air. So I'm super stoked yeah. to see how it finishes and I'm really impressed by, uh, by the production of it. Um, and of course, yeah, a lot of it's probably made for TV to kind of like, you know, make it sound bites from, you know, his, 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 his author that makes it sound like he was going to retire before the 92 Olympics, things that kind of played out, but it is, yeah. uh, it's really well done. And um, I would love to like, in follow-up kind of understand like what Jordan is like today, you know, and does he practice, you know, Kobe was a devout Catholic Jordan. Does he practice faith? You know, does he, does he, does he have a, a yoga practice? Is he, you know, you know, does he do meditation? Um, and then what kind of like what it's like to work for him, you know, in the front office of the Charlotte Hornets, you know, what kind of leader does he walk into a boardroom and try to, you know, command, um, cause obviously, um, it's gotta be tough being Michael Jordan today and like yeah. watching what it, what it was like when you when you you, you peaked at 32 yeah. years old, you yeah. know? 
how you find yeah. that peacefulness. I mean, I think the, the argument for Jordan being a good representation of well-being would be that when he was, you know, there's different seasons to life, right? And so when he was, his goal was to succeed at the highest levels and command all of his dimensions of well-being and all of his resources to put the, um, to win championships, right? Uh, to be the best basketball player and win championships and probably in reverse order to win championships and then, you know, push himself and push others uh, to that goal. And so he harnessed all of his resources and energy. I mean, you could say that inner narrative is, uh, you know, is an emotional dimension. Obviously he's got a social element where he's, you know, talking to the guys and building relationships. We didn't talk about this last time. I think we did after we wrapped it, but the relationships that he built with, you know, the, the people just in the office or in, in the, in the, um, in the locker room, the guys that were protecting him, like playing quarters with it. So he, he had this social element. Clearly he's an intellectual guy uh, uh, on what he did with Space Jam. Um, physical, there's no doubt. Professionalism, no doubt. Uh, you know, the spiritual, maybe, I don't know that as much. Um, but you could say that some of, even some of that, you know, creating these inner narratives kind of taps into a, a different, uh, different domain or different dimension. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, and maybe we can, we can talk about this in the live setting on Tuesday, May 26th at 2 p.m. Pacific. Um, just how is he channeling his greatness that was on the basketball court into what he's doing today? Um, but I would expect that, yeah, there's some version of that that's, 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 that's showing up. Uh, so with that, we will wrap up uh, episode number two of the Be Mike Like miniseries. So again, I'll mention Tuesday, May 26th at 2 p.m. Pacific. We'll have a live setting where you can jump in, talk with other basketball fans, other well-being fans, both. Uh, we've got some pretty uh, fun and interesting stuff lined up there. Uh, for details on that, you can check the show notes here. And uh, we will have the next episode out, the final episode of the mini series, which will cover episode nine and ten. We'll have that published uh, sometime uh, next week. Which we'll... All right, thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you at episode three. Thanks, thanks, thanks Andrew. Andrew.